Hey y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, we try to make sense of the U.S. withdrawal in Afghanistan and the writers of Reservation Dogs. All right, let's start the show. Hey y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. And this week, we talk Afghanistan. For the last 20 years, America has been wrapped up in a costly war in Afghanistan. It began as a response to the September 11th attacks. But then it turned into two decades of, well, who can really be sure? Nation building, an expansion of Western-style democracy, a counterterrorism mission. Back in 2001, shortly after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, the Taliban tried to negotiate as their defenses crumbled. They even offered up Osama bin Laden back in 2001 albeit with some big caveats, like having him tried in a third country. The Bush administration said no. There's no discussions. I told told them exactly what they need to do. And America stayed to build a Western-style democracy in Afghanistan. There's no need to discuss innocence or guilt. We know he's guilty. But of course, that didn't really happen. And flash forward to now, it looks like Afghanistan is experiencing the exact opposite. Not long after U.S. troops began to withdraw from Afghanistan, the Taliban took control of the entire country. The sudden capture of the country's capital has shocked the world and caused bedlam this morning. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. As we record this show on Friday, we've already seen at least one deadly terrorist attack. And the security situation remains volatile. Many people, including U.S. service members and Afghans, were killed by an explosion outside the airport in Kabul on Thursday. President Biden has vowed to find those responsible. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. So a war that began with a terrorist attack is bookended by another one. So many big questions still loom over all of this. To get some answers, I invited two of my most esteemed colleagues, Monica Estatieva. She's a senior producer on NPR's Investigations Unit, and Asma Khalid, White House correspondent. Um, you know, I want to talk big picture about what this withdrawal means and what might happen next. But I want to start and just break down briefly what... Team Biden's plan for this exit was. Asma, can you tell us how it was supposed to go? So this was supposed to be, in their view, a fairly like clean and easy uh, withdrawal. And essentially, you know, when I talk to Democrats who supported this idea of withdrawal, they speak about the idea that in some ways Afghanistan had become a a, quote, distraction for the broader foreign policy ambitions that this White House has and that other Democrats have, right? That they see the, the global fight now, it's, it's moved, it's evolved, and it's about autocracies and democracies. It's the battle between the United States and China. Hmm. And they saw Afghanistan as just, frankly, not being a part of that equation. You know, I think what makes the argument of that, that, that idea that this is a distraction challenging now for the Biden White House is that if you wanted to be able to pull out to focus on other needs, you have now spent the last few weeks exclusively focused on Afghanistan. And, you know, let's be real. To some degree, many many Americans had frankly forgotten that the United States was engaged in a war in mm. Afghanistan. It was mm. not on people's radars. That's very mm. much, you know, not the case now. Yeah. 
Well, and now it seems as if the Biden administration is open to having some presence longer than they might want to. There's been mention of possible drone strikes in the future should American interests in Afghanistan be put in danger. So in a strange way, this exit, this departure and the way it's rolled out has kind of opened the door for America to have to keep some kind of footprint in there, at least temporarily. Some of the information we've been getting on background was that Biden's plan, and I don't know, Asma has been hearing on the political side, but on the military side, what we've been hearing is that the military advised uh, Biden not to withdraw in this shape, in this with this speed, that it had to be a much more gradual withdrawal mm. that m- in many, many more steps. And now we're seeing that if national security is one of the things um, the U.S. has cared the most over the past 20 years since the first troops arrived in Afghanistan, is there national security when we have safe havens now for insurgencies and terrorist organization, but without any supervision or any access of U.S. forces? Mm. Um, You know, to the point that Monica's making, I did some reporting a bit ago about just how this entire withdrawal, what this exit policy, you know, shows about how the Biden White House thinks about foreign policy more broadly. Mm. And, you know, I've heard a lot from this White House. I think they've been trying to hammer home this idea of the United States could not stay any longer because if it did, it would require adding an additional troop. So the choice is really to leave or to stay. And I would say that, like, binary choice is something that a lot of foreign policy experts disagree with. They say it's not about the decision of the United States to withdraw or to leave. It was about how it was done. And to Monica's point, I mean, this is something I heard a lot about. You know, I, I spoke with one of Obama's national security advisors, former President Barack Obama, and he said that from his thinking, you know, the order of things seemed to be off. That usually well, this is you would what have, I want to bring up, Bosma, yeah. because, you know, you quote in this piece that you wrote, this policy expert saying that the Biden withdrawal kind of happened in the reverse of how it should have played out. This expert said the first thing you do is get the civilians and families out. Then you get the government personnel out if mm-hmm. that's required. And then last the military leave. And I read that and that made sense to me. And I want to understand from you clearly, did Team Biden do the exact opposite of that in this withdrawal or was it something else? So there was a very small footprint of U.S. troops left in Afghanistan. They, in fact, had to bring in additional resources from out of the country just to beef up security around the airport in the last, uh, I would say, week or so. For the exit. Wow. Well, this is and this brings me to my next question for you, Monica, about your reporting. You and our colleague Tom Bowman wrote an article specifically about why the Afghan army collapsed so quickly. And in your piece, you really lay out the scenario in which the Afghan army was a lot weaker than I think most Americans thought. They were this military body that really wasn't able to do too much without the U.S. right next to them, right? Yes, exactly. I had, um, me and Tom, we had a very rare opportunity to do something that very few foreign reporters do to begin with, which is, it is because it's very risky and it's usually not a good idea, but we embedded for weeks and weeks with the Afghans, with the Afghan commandos and with the Afghan uh, army. And we saw a couple of very fundamental problems that were present five years ago. One of them was that 
the rates of people dying was so high that just you cannot keep up with training because you, you train somebody for a couple of months, then they're very young and very inexperienced and they get killed. And we know that there are over 60,000 Afghans who have died just fighting with the majority of them in the last couple of years. And then we saw another problem, which is the fact that some of these young men, they were just not able to read and to write. And even the, their supervisors, the people higher in their army ranks, also couldn't do that. We made so many things hard, like reading maps, giving proper coordinates, even learning from the manuals. And the biggest one of all, I would say, which is corruption, because there was such a widespread corruption that even the people who fought hard, that had all the right intentions and were patriots, they were getting put in a very precarious situations by people who were taking advantage of them. Like food was stolen from soldiers. They were not allowed to go back home to rest. It was all kinds of nepotisms of who was getting assigned to these high-end general positions that was not because of their proficiency. And yet still there was an army that was existing. And I think the final blow was the quick withdrawal without any aerial support. And we know until the very last moment, the commandos were fighting, were fighting very hard. But the, at the second, they all realized that there is no one who's going to be able to come with the airplanes to help out or any kind of intelligence support by the yeah. U.S., they just felt they completely abandoned. Yes, and yeah. some people yeah. started hiding or some people just left as soon as they could. Well, and this is what brings me to my next question for both of you. If that is a reality in Afghanistan, and, and, and that's been the reality for years, an Afghan army that is really intertwined with the American military and needs the American military to survive. Why weren't Americans more aware of that reality? And this brings me to a question about Biden and his messaging. You know, as he took office, Joe Biden, he had this pension for underpromising, uh, underpromising about the pandemic and about the economy, which is a smart strategy. And, and this allows him to perhaps take bigger victory laps when things turn out well. But it seems like with Afghanistan, he didn't underpromise enough. I mean, that's a, an intriguing criticism, right? I mean, I will say that I was at the press conference that he gave in July where he spoke about the drawdown of U.S. troops. And many of us journalists, myself included, in the room, asked him iterations of the question of, you know, the, the possibility of a Taliban takeover. And I would say, you know, he was largely dismissive of that reality. He suggested that it was not an inevitable possibility, that he trusted that the Afghan forces would be able to fend off the Taliban. And, you know, these were some of the very quotes and clips then used once the Taliban did take control of Kabul. You know, I think, though, to me, when you talk about under-promising and over-delivering, you know, I think about the very phrase that Biden speaks about. He spoke about, it, I think, even back in April when he announced the drawdown. And he, he would say that it's time to end the forever war. And that idea is, like, by bringing home troops from Afghanistan, the United States was in some way ending a, quote, forever war. But I actually think, like, in a lot of ways, the forever war, and this is a much deeper conversation, has completely morphed into a war that is almost impossible for the United States to end. Wow. And the withdrawal from Afghanistan only cements that further. 
And that wow. is the war of like drone attacks in Pakistan, Somalia, Yemen. I mean, yeah. the idea that here we are 20 years after September 11th with still really no clear end to the forever war, it's just a very different kind of forever war. It's just changing. Well, and I think, you know, we are marking so much around that 20-year mark since the Twin Towers fell and the war on terror seemed to begin. But when you think about this country, you know, and Afghanistan, the U.S. has been involved with Afghanistan for decades, and it has been for decades since before the Twin Towers fell. And I wonder, to close this conversation, when you're looking at it in that big arc, the arc of American policy and foreign policy writ large, does this withdrawal, at least of ground troops from Afghanistan, and this seeming pivot, does it represent a fundamental big shift in American foreign policy or not? If, if I can chime in here, yes. uh, we need time to see how things in Afghanistan unfold from now on to be really the, to make any kinds of like assessments or judgments on what yeah. this moment symbolized. But I, I wanted to say that we know now that in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see an even bigger humanitarian crisis with, with their shortages of food. There are people without salaries, with the Afghani devaluing and a huge migration crisis internally in the country. So we are yet to see what kind of um, outcome this will lead. And also we see a very strong sense that this country, we can become now a safe haven for Al-Qaeda 2.0, for ISIS-Q, and for all these other groups that we are very afraid to give them any ground to build up and to become stronger. You know, I'd say for most of my adult life, the United States has been involved in military interventions um, in, you could say, South Asia, the Middle East, just the broad region. And I don't know if it will be a successful pivot. I think, as Monica's saying, it's too early really to kind of like hypothesize about that in terms of the effects of what President Biden is trying to do. But I would argue that he he is attempting to pivot. You know, there's one foreign policy expert I spoke with who said that President Biden seems to understand that the world abroad, it's not meant to be transformed. It's not meant to be redeemed. Mm. It's meant to be simply managed. Wow. And there is a sense that people around him, people on his team feel like foreign policy was very much detached from the lives of many Americans, middle class Americans, they say, and that they want to create a, quote, foreign policy for the middle class. You know, what exactly that means, I would argue, is still extremely unclear to me. But the, the sense is that military interventions with ground troops overseas, they want to end that. Hey, well, thank you both for your reporting. Um, I really appreciate it. And that's all I got. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for having us. Thanks again to Asma Khalid, NPR White House correspondent, and Monica Estatieva, senior producer on NPR's Investigations Unit. And listeners, just a reminder once more, we taped this show on Friday. News may have changed a bit by the time you hear it. All right, coming up, we switch gears big time. I chat with a writer and a co-creator from the show Reservation Dogs. My guests talk about what it was like to work on what might be TV's first all-Native writer's room. (laughs) 
Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. So y'all know I watch a lot of TV, and there's a new show out right now that I think you should watch too. It is a coming-of-age show unlike anything that's come before. Oi, so you think your uncle knows how to do a curse? A curse? I told you I have their hair. Didn't you say he was, like, tradish or something? I mean, yeah, he's tradish, but I don't think he's, like, a medicine man or a wizard. How'd you even get This show is called Reservation Dogs. It's on FX, on Hulu, and it's about four indigenous teens living in rural Oklahoma. Who are... Um, trying to get the hell out of town. Um, They've lost a friend, and they've blamed the town for it. And it's really sort of a celebration of their community. It's it's them looking at what they want to leave. And when you look deeply at what you want to leave, sometimes you realize that you don't want to leave, and sometimes you you, you see the, the beauty and the things that could actually make you stay. This show, in 2021... It is believed to be the first one with an all-Indigenous team of writers, directors, and lead actors. My next guests are a part of that team. My name is Tommy Teebs Pico. I'm an Indigenous American poet, screenwriter, TV writer, and (laughs) And I'm Sterling Harjo. I am Muscogee Creek and Seminole, and from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And and not a I'm not. Not. Definitely. (laughs) I leave that for Tommy. Tommy is one of the show's writers. And Sterling, along with Taika Waititi, is the show's co-creator. I began by asking about the first scene of this show. It starts out just placing you right in some action. And I, I, I don't think this would be a spoiler, but like the opening scene is uh, these four native teens. They start out by like stealing, right? And it totally upends some of the tropey representation we see of natives in TV and movies where they're, you know, sacred and pious yeah. and, you know, these stereotypes of like spiritual quiet beings. No, yeah. these these folks are still in a truck full of chips. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean like when I, you know, writing that scene, the idea was um I wanted it to feel like this punk rock opening to uh, a story about natives that you'd never seen before. And part of that was dropping you right in the middle of this story as they're stealing something. Put your seatbelt on. Seatbelt? People say We're stealing a I do not give a that. Put your seatbelt on. Jesus Christ. Okay, weirdo. And just kind of like shake off all, like you said, like shake off all the old cobwebs of representation and let people know, kind of hit them in the mouth right up front and say like, this is going to be totally different, you know, so buckle up. And, yeah. you know, we're not going to wait on you and we're not going to hold your hand, but we'll allow you to come with us. So jump on board. And that was really yeah, the get idea. get in the truck. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Get in, get in yeah. the trip truck with us. So y'all could have taken on any slice of life of the experience of being Native, any demographic, any age group, and you chose teens. Mm-hmm. Why that age group? I think really it was because there's coming-of-age stories because of this. You know, like it's such a vulnerable time in our lives when a lot of us, you know, and Tommy and I both, and all the writers, you know, we grew up in these communities where we had friends that we saw them take a turn and they went down one direction, you know, and in hindsight, you can look back and say, wow, it wasn't the right direction to go. And we could have easily taken that direction. And sometimes we probably did. But somehow we found ourselves out, you know, on the right track. And we both are writers and, 
and telling stories. And, and I think storytelling kind of saved me, honestly, and, and sure. art saved me. And so, you know, it's this moment where we find these kids and I think there's, there's a heightened drama there because we don't know where they're going to go. I was, and that's honestly one of the things that compelled me the most about the pilot when I first read it was that sort of in media res field. Cause like that's how I like to write as well. Like all my poem, I don't, you know, it takes the throat clearing out of it. And, you mm-hmm. know, I tell this to like Rebecca Roanhorse all the time. I'm just like, you are doing God's work because you are saving kids. Like, cause she does a lot of young adult stuff and yeah. she's also getting people at a vulnerable age into um, reading and writing and also representation. Cause when you don't see yourself in anything, you don't think you're meant to be there. That's a, mm-hmm. and, and if that's like your if that's like a formative feeling, then that's you carry that into your adult life. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So there is there's a certain kind of performative native identity that this show is clearly rejecting, and I think in the pilot it's most clear when one of the central characters has this vision into the past, yeah, and this like ancient native warrior on a horse comes to talk to him. And you expect a certain type of speech, because you know what we see. (laughs) And then he ends up saying, I was at the Battle of Little Bighorn. That's right. I didn't kill anybody, but I fought bravely. Well, I didn't actually fight. I actually didn't even get into the fight itself. But I came over that hill real rugged, like, "Ah, ah," I saw a custer like that. (laughs) And it's like totally (laughs) turning on its head all of the things we think about the ancestors. Mm -hmm. That is brave to do. I loved watching it, but were either of you scared writing that kind of thing and having that kind of thing out there? Because I can imagine some folks, even in your own community, might say, the disrespect. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I think part of the thing that we're changing with this is also the way that Native people look at ourselves and our stories, because we had mm. to fulfill, we had to feed into these lies that were, because, you know, because there's so much wrapped up in it, culture, money, all kinds of things. So we had to feed into these lies, and I feel like I mean, because look, 90% of the audience, if you were to say, uh, you know, like, tell me what you picture when you see a Native American, that would be it. That would be what they picture. Mm-hmm. And so it's taking that idea, bringing an audience in and saying, here's something you're very familiar with. We just got through showing you a bunch of modern versions of what Natives are actually like right now. But we're going to bring you to something you're comfortable with. And then we're going to really make fun of it together. And we're going to let you in on the joke. And you're going to laugh at it with us. And it kind of gives them permission, I think to forgive themselves for thinking that's who we are because of the bad representation through Hollywood. And it's like, I think instead of like, you know, pushing people away, it actually brings an audience in to laugh with us and say like, look at this, isn't this ridiculous that you think we still dress like that, you know? And, uh, yeah. and I think it actually kind of serves that purpose. Like Sterling and Tag had created this world and there was already a few scripts and some lore when the writer's room started and when I kind of got attached to the project. So I didn't like originate any of this, but I was in stitches because (laughs) I just thought like taking that idea, there was something like, I don't know, we talked about this a lot in the room, how we and our people and ourselves, we can be our worst critics and we are our worst Mm -hmm. critics. And and there was a sort of crabs in a bucket feel to some of the stuff. And just to take some air out of that and just to be like, yo, this could also be hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tommy, you came to this TV writer's room uh, from the world of poetry. How big has that shift been? Well, I didn't really have a choice <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, you know, it was like, you know, the learning curve was steep because, like, I, you know, pandemic started and I, I had made my living as a poet largely by touring. 
So when mm. the pandemic took that off of the table, I did not know what I was going to do. I had a few mm-hmm. months worth of saving, like in terms of like rent that I could, I had to pad myself. And I was thinking like, I'm gonna have to go back to the resolution of my brother in the mountains where there <laughs> is spotty internet. And I was like, I didn't know if I was going to have a social life. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And yeah. then Sterling called me on a Wednesday in June and I thought, fully thought it was a butt dial. Cause like, <laughs> I mean, I had met Sterling, but we weren't like, call on a random Wednesday, like, yeah. friends. And I was like, uh, and I answered, like, a question, Sterling? Yeah, yeah. And it was, the call was two minutes, two minutes that changed my life say? forever. He just said, um, so Tyke and I are putting this room together, we're doing this TV show, do you want to be in the room? And I was like, uh, and I literally said, and you're going to have to bleep this out because it's NPR, but I literally said, so you want to f- around and make all my dreams come true? <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> and I said, yes. And he said, uh, send me your reps. And I did. And then the next week, the room started. And yeah. I was, then I was a TV writer. <laughs> yeah. Well, and just hearing y'all describe the writer's room, which I read uh, was all native, correct? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, like, I mean, I'll hear so many stories of the way that people get selected for TV writing rooms and the way that people of color get selected. You know, in majority mm-hmm. white spaces, it can be an arduous, torturous process. You might be the diversity hire, which is a thing that oh, still yeah. happens, and that is marginalizing. You might have to jump through extra hoops and hurdles to get the same chances, you know, some of the white men might get. But to hear you say, Sterling, that you just called Tommy up and within yeah. two minutes it happened, I'm like, that's, what's ha- like, that's what happens when the community gets to make a thing itself. That's right. Without and the like, gatekeepers, without, you know, outside interference. That's right. And, and you know, hats off to FX. They, they let me uh, do that. I mean, they never batted an eye when I said I wanted a Native room or, or, na- or Native directors. And, you know, because, in, in like, Indian country's small. I mean, we all know each other. Um, yeah. It was really easy putting that room together. It's like, you know, it. here's yeah. a handful of people. Let's pick them. I still don't believe it. I mean, I I, in in the midst of, of feeling unprecedented, I still feel such an incredible amount of gratitude because, like, this man Sterling Harjo's changed my life forever. Oh, like, wow. I will never. I ain't going back to poetry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you have to go back to poetry. I can't do it, Sam. I can't. I can't do it. Sam is no money. I can't have a house <laughs> in poetry. Some TV writing. I don't know. You know, it's uh, this. This end of the pool feels real warm. Yeah, that's okay. Right. Okay. okay. You're in the hot tub now. <laughs> So that's what he told me after. He was like, you've ruined my poetry career. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Last question for y'all about the show before we go play a game. What do you hope Native youth get from this show? Because mm. Native teens are the center of this show, and it's focused on them. So for Native teens that are watching, is there a hope for what they take away from it, or are you just kind of like waiting to see what happens? No, I mean, I, I think that, Tommy and I both and all of us, I think life would have been different and we would have felt more seen if we would have grown up with a show like this. And I think being seen is very important. And I think it makes you feel not alone. It's very simple, you know? It's like, if you feel seen, you feel like you're not alone. You feel like other people have your experience. It gives you you strength and power to, I think, um, lead your life in the best way you can. And so that's what I, I mean, that's, that's the audience right there for me. It's like, that's yeah. what this show does for me. Yeah. And I, I remember thinking this when, when I read the pilot, when Sterling asked me to be part of the, 
or offered me the opportunity to be part of the writer's room, I felt like it was an extension, a, a broader extension of what I was already trying to do with poems, which was just like, you know, I'd go on tour and I'd write these books and I, and, and the, the best feeling ever was when, um, like a native youth and a queer native youth would come up to me mm. and Mostly it was like the white gays were the ones who most like would be demonstrative about demanding my attention and like the queer Ooh. natives were the ones who like were more respectful yeah. and so they would hang back. But I was like, no, you're the ones who I yeah. want to step to the front. Yeah. You're the ones who I want to talk to. This is for you. This isn't. And so they would have this moment when, you know, I would be like, this is ours. Like this is native poetry. This is ours. This is, this is not just mine anymore. Yes. And, I, and having the opportunity to do that on the level that it is now, you know, and have to be and the small part that I am be an architect of that for like c- contemporary Native youth, and it's getting into so many more homes than a poem ever would. Mm. You know, I just feel grateful for that opportunity yeah. as well. Fubu for us, by us. That's right. Here, mm-hmm. you know, here's to reservation dogs, and here's to no matter what, <laughs> Tommy not quitting poetry. <laughs> you can do both. Yeah. <laughs> just give it away for free, Tommy. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna go to a break. Uh, when we come back, we're gonna play a game. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Monday.com. If you're drowning in work instead of steering the ship, you know there's got to be a better way. With Monday.com Work OS, your team can choose how your workflow looks. That way you can stay on top of your work and say goodbye to work overload. Over 125,000 customers get more out of their workday with Monday.com. So if you want your team to be more effective than ever, visit monday.com slash podcast for your free two-week trial. This message comes from NPR sponsor Best Fiends. With today's always-on culture, your brain could probably use a break. When you feel the need for a mental pick-me-up, play Best Fiends, the five-star rated mobile puzzle game. Solve thousands of refreshingly challenging puzzles and meet tons of cute collectible characters. With daily events and fresh updates released all the time, there's always something new to explore. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I am here with the creator of and a writer on a new show called Reservation Dogs on FX on Hulu. Guest, tell my listeners who you are and tell folks quickly what the show is. Uh, my name is Sterling Harjo. I am creator, writer of uh, Reservation Dogs, showrunner. Um, it is a show about Native teens sort of doing what they can to get out of town and trying to figure their future out. I am Tommy Pico, staff writer. Um, I have a small hand in, you know, some of the jokes. <laughs> All right, I want you both to play my favorite game with me. It's called Who Said That? Ooh, Who said that? Who said that? I don't think either of you have played it before, but Tommy, you probably know. I haven't played it, but I play it every week on my own. I am I never get anything. I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to get it. I'm going to fail at this game. I don't play games. I'm really bad at this stuff, too. But, I, but it is. Every single week, I'm just like, who did say that? I have no idea. Well, I'm going to make it as easy as possible for you both. And just know it's very low stakes. There's no prize, and I don't even really keep score. Uh, The game is simple. I share three quotes from the week of news. You tell me who said it or what story we're talking about. No buzzers. Just yell out your answers. Uh, This first one I think is pretty easy. Here we go. This quote is, Captain is part of the governor's family, 
And for your nameless, ill-informed source to imply they've been trying to give him away is untrue. Who said that? Oh, man. Is Captain a dog? Yeah. Is it the vice president's dog? No. Another politician's dog. Biden said that. I uh, think New York State. Oh, is it Cuomo's dog? Yeah. Y'all didn't hear this? Oh, yeah. So that quote is part of a statement from Richard Azopardi. He's a senior advisor and spokesman uh, for former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. We all know that Cuomo was uh, forced to step down. Uh, he resigned from office this week after many allegations of sexual harassment from nearly a dozen women. Mm-hmm. But on his way out, according to a story in the Albany Times Union, former Governor Cuomo tried to give the dog away to an employee at the governor's mansion. Um, The employee took the dog home, but it didn't work out. And after Cuomo resigned, the dog was just back at the governor's mansion, like, abandoned. Wow. That is so, like, pandemic writ large. Like, so many people adopted pets, and then after, they're like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. (laughs) But at least take it back to the shelter. Cuomo was like, you just stay in the mansion. The next family can take you on. It's crazy. So so what did happen to the dog? So Cuomo denies that he abandoned his dog. So the spokesperson said that Cuomo wanted to go on vacation and that, quote, they love that dog. Uh, also, he said he didn't ask to give away the dog. You know, I don't know. Given Cuomo's track record, I'm inclined to not believe what he said. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he doesn't seem like a too much of a trustworthy man. No. Also, the poor dog. But if there is a place to be stranded, it is a governor's mansion. Not a bad place to have to hang out. It's like home alone, but a dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Captain the dog. Uh, who got that point? That was Tommy. That was Tommy. I love this third person. That was Tommy. <laughs> All right, next quote. I love this one. I will not be prancing on milk crates, and neither should you. Who said that? Was that Dion Warwick? Yes! Gah! Yes, it was, Tommy Pico! Yes, it was! Tommy, why are, why are you... You've been, like, researching and stuff. That just sounded like something Dion Warwick would tweet, because I am a fan of that woman's Twitter. Oh, her Twitter is great. So Dion Warwick, famous, legend, storied R&B singer, uh, she joined Twitter, and she's been everyone's favorite auntie with opinions and she tweeted this week about the milk crate challenge she said i won't be doing it and neither should you so this milk crate challenge it is entirely totally crazy have y'all seen it it looks impossible not to fall no one can do it so the way it works is you get a bunch of milk crates also where does one get milk crates these days i don't know i know how do you get that many right so you get like 15 (laughs) 20 milk crates and you stack them into like a pyramid which is taller than you maybe like eight to ten feet tall And the challenge is to climb up to the top of the milk crate pyramid and then climb all the way down, up one side and down the other. Of course, milk crates are not made for walking. They are not stable. So without Mm -hmm. fail, these grown adults end up falling off the milk crates midway up the milk crate pyramid. And it's a thing where you post the videos to social media. He got it, too. Sure won't. I won't be the one. <laughs> what would it take to get either of you to actually do or take part in a milk crate challenge? I'm making TV writer money now, so I'm just like, there's no incentive for me to do anything that endangers my body. I don't want to hurt my head, my brain, you know, like head injury or something. If I could wear a bike helmet and there was like a body of water around the milk crates to like help me fall gracefully, 
and you paid me several thousands of dollars, and you weren't videotaping, maybe. And everything was in bubble wrap, Uh and (laughs) Jason Momoa is waiting for me on the other side, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Last quote for the game. We have secured assurances necessary to support our diverse creator community. Who said that? A company in the news over what kind of content might be allowed on its platform. OnlyFans. Yeah. Tommy, look at you. Oh, man. Look at you. <laughs> Early 90s Chicago Bulls right here. <laughs> yeah. Just, just, you know, champion, champion. I'm a <laughs> I just know about these. I know about, I know about Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so OnlyFans has been in the news this week and last because prior to last week, OnlyFans was a space online where uh, people who wanted to share adult content that they created with viewers could do so and make pretty good money on it. Um, but last week, all of a sudden, out of the blue, OnlyFans said, we're going to ban nudity because the finance companies that we work with don't want us to have that anymore. And everyone said, are you serious? Don't you know what made you famous? Yeah. Come on now. Come on. It's like, okay, so you want people to abandon you en masse. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I was surprised by how quickly OnlyFans reversed this decision to ban explicit content. But I also kind of wonder what these banks and finance companies have as their standards. Because I'm sure if they looked at where all the money coming to and from and through them is coming from, they'd see a lot of things that are questionable, right? Do you think poisoning water and drilling for oil is worse than a Come on now. Like, you've got <laughs> to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. They think that, like, like they profit off of, like, blood and oil and wars. And you talk about, oh, okay, but, but having sex is wrong. That's where we draw the line. Come on now. There you go. So, uh, Tommy, even though you didn't believe in yourself, you did win this game. You won Who Said That 3-0. to zero. How does it feel? Give us an awards acceptance speech. Tommy, come on, man. I do. I play this game with everyone every week, and I've never gotten a single answer right. Somehow the stars just aligned. Um, I want to thank God, uh, the Academy. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I, I never imagined winning this award, but I have been crafting award show ceremony speeches in my mind for the past 37 years. So <laughs> there we go. I love it. I love it. Well, hey, to both of you, Thanks for playing the game. And Tommy, you better keep writing poems. I'm <laughs> We'll see. When they come with my rate, we'll see. <laughs> my, my rate has been raised. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, you got the TV money. Uh, thank you both so much. Thank you so much. Thanks again to my guests, Sterling Harjo and Tommy Pico. You can catch their show, Reservation Dogs, on FX, on Hulu, right now. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hey Sam, this is Teresa. The best part of my week is that I get to start it off by sitting in an airport masked up ready to fly. This is gonna be my first flight since March, 2020 all kinds of nerves and excitement going on. Couldn't even sleep last night for my early flight. Hi, Sam. This is Anne in Salem, Oregon. The best part of my week was signing a lease for my new apartment in Seattle. 
I took a three-week road trip from Orlando, Florida to Seattle, Washington to start grad school. On the way, I was able to stop in New Orleans, see the Grand Canyon. I met up with friends. My dad and brother helped me drive. It's been a lot of fun. Hey, Sam, this is Katie in Edgewood, Washington. And the best thing that happened to me this week is that my wife finished chemo and she's feeling good. Hi, Sam. This is Christine from Carborough, North Carolina. The best thing that happened to me this week is that I finally finished paying off my student loans. 11 years after I graduated from medical school, I am 100% student debt free. Hi, Sam. It's Anjali. The best thing that happened to me this week is I got to celebrate my fiance Franklin's birthday. We were so excited to be able to celebrate with both of our families and have lots of different kinds of cake and also our favorite deep dish pizza. So happy birthday, Franklin, and I'm so excited to get married to you really soon. Hi, Sam. This is Daniela from Stockholm, Sweden. The best thing that happened to me this week is I got to travel to Atlanta, Georgia to celebrate my mom's 70th birthday and also tell her that she's going to be a grandma. It's been a tough year and getting to see the joy in our face is the best thing in the world. Looking forward to the week. Love the show. Thanks. Bye. Have a great day. Thanks to all those listeners you heard there. Daniela, Christine, Katie, and my friend and It's Been a Minute producer, Anjali Sastry, and Teresa. Also, listeners, before we go, one small thing. We are working on a very special music series that's going to run next month. And one of the episodes is going to be all about Soul Train. I know. Exciting. Uh, if you have any connection to this amazing show, if you've danced on Soul Train, if you know someone who has, if you watched it back in the day, hit us up. Let us know. We want to hear from you. Record your Soul Train story onto your smartphone and send that to us via email. samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. Seriously, give us your Soul Train stories. We need them. All right, this week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, Andrea Gutierrez, and Liam McBain. Our editor this week is my friend and colleague, Mathani Maturi. Mathani, thanks for your help. We always love having you around. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grunman. All right, listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. Peace, love, and soul. We'll talk soon. <laughs>